Well, this has been a great week, hasn't it? Amen. Um, I have resisted for two Sundays now, uh, tapping into the tour, but I'm not going to resist any longer. And so let me begin on Tuesday of this week. I uh, came in here and did a few things, and uh, then I spent a lot of time at Barney's Beanery with Lisa this week, but because uh, they have OLN. But uh, on Tuesday, the tour riders entered the toughest stage of the tour. We, we all knew this was when it would be decided, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And so Tuesday was a great day, and they end climbing the most famous mountain for the tour, Alpe d'Huez. And it was pretty much determined whoever wins today or at least is strong, this is going to sort out you know, the guys who are capable and those who are not. And uh, although Floyd Landis from San Diego County lives in Marietta, he's a southern He's not from Southern California. He's actually from back east, but he lives here now and trains here. Uh, Floyd Landis, by the end of the day, he didn't win the day, but he went into the yellow jersey, meaning he was the overall leader of the race, and everybody thought he's going to win this tour. He's the best bet to win. That's Tuesday. Wednesday was actually the most difficult day. They, have, they had several mountains to go over, and so they went over the first one, everything's fine. They went over the second one, everything's fine. And as they went over the third one, as they started out, there were only 12 kilometers to go, and uh, it was obvious that something was wrong with Landis. He just couldn't get up the hill at the same speed as everybody else. So they began to attack, and the thing broke up, and the main riders rode off. There he was, laboring away. It took him 10 minutes to reach the top after the first guy had crossed. And everybody was moaning and groaning, and it was one of the biggest meltdowns of a tour leader ever. So Wednesday ends with all this drama that Landis has not done well, he's lost the tour, and uh, he can't possibly come back, said many of the commentators. Well, Thursday came, and Thursday was not as tough a day, but they're still in the Alps. There are five mountain stages, and so, or mountains to climb, and so at the very first stage, Landis has already told his team, I want you to ride yourself into the ground, go as fast as you can, because I'm going to make a breakaway. Now, they didn't believe him, but they tried to help as best they could, and on the very first mountain, there he goes. And, of course, the other riders said, we've got to follow. You can't let him get a lead on us. So they try to follow. And uh, as they came to that last stage, he had dropped everybody he's riding away, and he had brought back almost all the time he lost. And people were saying, I've never seen anything like this. This is amazing. So on Wednesday, he's in the basement. You know, everything has collapsed. On Thursday, he's back on top. And then yesterday was the time trial when he went back into first place. And today he celebrated his victory on the Champs-Élysées in Paris. Just, just an amazing story. Now, as I was thinking about that and connecting that to what we're going to talk about today, I was thinking about the fact that as you talk to Landis, he's a pretty low-key kind of guy. He was raised a Mennonite in back east. His parents are very devout Mennonites. And uh, first of all, as a rider of a championship level, you have to have faith. You have to have faith in yourself. I can do this. There has to be some element of faith. Secondly, uh, you don't ride and suffer like that. You don't participate in any sport at a pro level without loving the sport. It's his passion. And from childhood, he's loved bicycling. And he used to be a mountain biker here in California. And so he loves cycling. There's the love for the sport. And then thirdly, after everything had crashed on Wednesday and everybody woke up Thursday saying, we don't know who's going to win this tour, but it won't be Landis, he still had hope. And he told the folks, I, I intend to win. I came here to win. So he had hope in his victory. And sure enough, today he celebrates victory. Now, don't you know the French are just ticked off? 
I had to drive home and uh, just to see Landis on the stage, and he got tears in his eyes as the American flag went up, and they played the Star Spangled Banner there in France for the eighth year in a row at their tour. And the reality is, in the last 21 years, Americans have won 11 times. I uh, just can't sit well if you're in France, I think. But anyhow, let's move on. I want to talk this morning about three things that I've mentioned, faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. And in your worship folder is the outline for today. And we are talking about key beliefs that our church hold as fundamental. These are foundational for us. And they're actually foundational for life. Now, I can already see that you're a pretty committed group of people to come out in this kind of weather. Uh, it's not air-conditioned here, as you well know, and you're here. And we're going to look at key belief or value number five. And I want to uh, read that together. In fact, why don't you find your folder, your uh, sheet, and we'll read it off the bottom of the sheet. On this sheet with the triangles on it, let's look at that if we could. We're going to read, we believe, and then with every belief we say a therefore. So this is a key belief, and it has to do with the church. Let's read together. We believe the church is a community of God's people established by Christ for making disciples and doing God's work on earth. Therefore, we will make disciples and do God's work. Pretty simple statement about the church. Now, I want to talk to you today about the local, visible body of Christ, the church. There's a lot in the New Testament. In fact, the word church occurs over a hundred times. So this could be a long message, but it won't be. But let's talk about, I want, to, I want to take you on a journey, and I want to do two things. I want to look into the scripture at a model church. And there could be lots of models. We'll pick one. And then secondly, I want to step away from the scripture and talk about ourselves as members of the church and as a local visible church. If we were to be a model church, what could we take from this early church that might still be useful for us today in our own life as a church. And so that's where we're going to go, kind of two phases. And the first one is to dig into the Scripture. Now, I have to confess, uh, when I was in college and learned Greek, the first book we had to translate was Thessalonians. And that sort of arduous process cemented this book in my mind. And I would like to spend the rest of the day, this is just a rich book. But I'm going to restrain myself, and uh, we'll just kind of touch into it. But if you have a Bible in front of you, I'd, I'd appreciate you pulling it out maybe and looking at page 203, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I want to highlight a couple of verses. The beginning of this chapter is a greeting, and it, you see three names there, Paul and Silvanius, or Silas, some translations, and Timothy, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, in verse 2, we read this. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in all our prayers. And let me pause here. It's always interesting to me as I think about the content of my prayer and then look at prayers in the Bible and see how different they are. And it's a great reminder to me of what I might be praying about rather than what I am, be pr am praying about. But notice how Paul and Silas and Timothy, as they pray for this church, notice what they emphasize. He says, We remember before our God and Father your work of faith labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in, a, in the church Bible, I don't want you to do this, but in your home Bible, the one you read, you should really underline verse 3. And that's where we're going to sit for a minute. Uh, we're calling this, and in your outline, I'm calling this the triad of Christian faith. John Calvin said that this verse really is a summary of Christianity. 
And there are three words that pop out at you if you're familiar with Christianity and the Bible. What are those words? We've already talked about them. Faith and love and hope. And you see this triad of Christian grace right here. Faith, love, and hope. Now, I pulled together a long list of scriptures that we won't go over, but you remember when Paul talks about the greatest gift is what? What's the number one gift you could have? Love. Yeah. Let's say it together. Love. That's the greatest gift. Well, when Paul wrapped up that chapter, he said there are three great gifts, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And so Paul really set forth this triad of Christian grace, but it's also found twice in the book of Hebrews in two different chapters there is this triad of faith, hope, and love. And then Peter also picks up on this theme in 1 Peter chapter 1, and he talks about uh, faith, hope, and love. So these are key words for us to think about. And as Paul writes to this church, in verse 6 and 7, he says that uh, you, you Thessalonian church are kind of like a bell in the tower. The gospel has been sounded out from you like a bell ringing and the sound goes out, everybody hears it. He says, everybody has heard about you, this church, because of your works of faith, labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Now, I want to back up for a minute. Um, When Paul came to Thessalonica, he's writing to a local visible church, the Church of Thessalonica. And we'll talk about how it started earlier. But Thessalonica was a city of about 200,000 people, more people than are in Pasadena. And it's set on the Aegean Sea, a gorgeous, gorgeous setting. It's set in kind of like an amphitheater. Mount Olympus is in the background. We had that up there. I didn't get a snow-covered picture. It looks better with snow on it. But anyhow, if you're in Thessalonica, you can see Mount Olympus. It's in the background. And then you can see what a beautiful port city this is, set like an amphitheater up against the Aegean Sea. And no doubt, as Paul, Silas, and Timothy went there, they wondered, uh, are these cosmopolitan urban people, are they going to listen to the gospel? Will it work there? Will it have any impact on this city? And it did. And he now writes to this church that's settled in Thessalonica, which was actually a port city, a link between Rome and the West and the East. It's a, it's a vibrant place, uh, a, a great place, named after the sister of Alexander the Great. The city's already about 350 years old when Paul goes there. So a lot of history there. It's a significant place. Now, as Paul goes there, the first thing he says about them, he says they have what? A work of, verse 3, a work of what? Faith. And I'd like to kind of take you around this triad or triangle that you have in your outline. Uh, I'd like to take you around that. And Paul says, I want to commend you because you're a model church and you have a work of faith. Now, I know work is a four-letter word. But can work be fun? Have any, do any of you, uh, would anyone just raise your hand and say, I love my work, it's fun. Oh, look at all these folks, that's fantastic. I was going to interview some of you, there's just too many. Uh, Christina, why do you love your work? Huh? And you work... Fire department, dispatch, you get to help people every day. Okay, that's a great reason to love your work. Somebody else, why do you love your work? What? Challenging. Okay, there, uh, help people, challenging, it contributes to society. There are lots of reasons why we might love our work. Work is not a dirty word. And I, I wish for every one of us that we could love our work. 
And Paul says of this church, one of the reasons they're a model church and the mark of a model church is that they have a work of faith. Now, it's not very often in Paul's writing that you find these two words together, work and faith. Paul's the person that said, we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, what? Not of works, lest anyone should boast. So Paul is the person we look to who makes very clear we're not saved by our works. Good works won't get you to heaven. Faith gets you to heaven. And Paul likes to keep those very separate, although in this church he says, I commend you for your works of faith. And the idea is that faith produces works. Now let's go to the guy who really liked to write about um, work. That would be the book of James. Listen to the scripture on this subject of work and faith combined. James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say, I have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. He goes on to talk about that, faith and works. Now, it's easy to think back in the scripture of people like uh, Martha. You remember, she liked to cook, and she was always feeding people. In fact, she was always feeding Jesus and the disciples. That was the expression of her faith produced good food. Those were her works. You think in the book of Acts of the lady Dorcas, and at her funeral, people talked about how much she sewed for them, and she provided clothing for people. Her faith produced that work. Zacchaeus in the Bible was a rich man, had a lot of money. After he met Jesus, he liked to give it away. His faith produced his work of generosity. And so that's the idea that faith produces work. Now, the second part of this triangle is what? Paul says also in verse 3, I commend you for your, the second mark is, Love. It's not just love. Labor of love. Now, I've never had a baby. Surprise. Let me ask those of you who have. Is work the same as labor? Huh? Oh, no. Oh, no. I hear labor is painful. Oh, yes? Yeah, Paul, oftentimes in Scripture, there'll be words that are similar. There's no distinction in meaning. Here, there's an enormous distinction between work and labor. It's a totally different word, and it has to do with pain, toilsome labor. And as you watch these guys climb the mountains in the Tour de France, somewhere the love of the whole thing goes away, and they're just in serious pain. It hurts. And it's all they can do to stay on that bike and get their body up the hill. That's a labor of love. And Paul commends this church for their labor of love. And that's when sometimes work moves beyond that fun stage and it just sheer, it's just hard, it's painful. And yet love keeps you going. And so he says another mark of this church is their labor of love. And then he goes to the idea of, uh, he says, I want to commend your patience in what? What's the third word? Hope. Your patience in hope. Now, as you think of those three, when Paul founded this church, Paul, Silas, and Timothy came there, it's instructive to kind of look back and to think about what happened. And if we had a lot of time for Bible study, we would open the Bible to Acts chapter 16 and 17 and read that story. If you grew up in church, you remember the story of the earthquake and the jail and the doors fell open and all that? Well, that's Acts 16. 
And Paul goes to a city called Philippi, Paul and Silas, and they preach the gospel there, and a, a, a church starts by a river with a woman named Lydia. In fact, it's, I think, mostly women in that church initially. Now, as the gospel takes root in Philippi, persecution comes, and Paul and Silas catch a beating for their faith, and they get put in jail in spite of the fact they're Roman citizens. And you remember the story. It's a very popular Sunday school story. Their backs are bleeding. They're singing songs in jail. The earthquake quake comes. The doors open. And it leads to the conversion of the jailer. After that, they're told, you've still got to get out of the city. And so Paul and Silas are uh, run out of town, so to speak, or escorted out, actually. Now, if you had been preaching the gospel, got beaten, put in jail, got out, what would you do the next day? I'd go home. I'd find a nurse. I'd say, I need some R&R. I'd sail to some nice, comfortable, relaxing place and say, I need a break. But, of course, Paul wouldn't do that. He went on his journey to preach the gospel. Where do you think he went next? He went to Thessalonica. And so he came to this city where there was no church, and within three or four or five weeks, he started a church. It's amazing. And in chapter 1, he references that, and let me read to you what he says. He talks about, in verse 6, they're, they're coming there, and Timothy has joined up with him. And he says, uh, you became imitators of us and the Lord. Now, let me pause. The word is mimic. And a lot of us are uncomfortable with this, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you should be able to say to anybody, follow me. I know the way. I'm going the right way. Follow me. Paul often said that. And those of us that are parents... Let me remind you, if you have children, your kids are following you. And they're going to grow up to be mostly like you and mostly have your values. They're going to mimic you or imitate you. Paul says to these young Christians, you became followers of us and of the Lord. Now, here's the point. In spite of persecution, you received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit so that you became a model to all the believers in the surrounding area. Now, coming back to what happened there, when uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy preached in Thessalonica, this church was formed. They stayed at a guy's house named Jason. Pretty soon, persecution came there. Paul and Silas and Timothy had to leave town. They couldn't be found by those who were upset about Christianity, so they took Jason and others and threw them into jail. Now, can you imagine winning somebody to Christ, and a few weeks later they're in jail and have to post bail to get out? That's not the prosperity gospel. In fact, that's, that's persecution, and Paul writes back to say, that's a labor of love. Christ really means something to you, and even though you got thrown in jail, you didn't fail Christ. That's a labor of love. You, you see the difference between work of faith and labor of love. And he cites that as an example here of their labor. It was painful to follow Christ sometimes, and sometimes it requires sacrifice. And so this is a model church because of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. John Stott, an Anglican pastor and scholar, says this, Faith looks toward God, love looks towards others, and hope looks towards the future. Faith rests on our past, love is at work in the present, we practice love now, and we have hope of seeing the return of Jesus Christ, of of meeting Christ. And so we have this triad of faith, hope, or faith, love, and hope, as the order is here. Now, turn your outline over, if you would. I want to move now from looking at this model church, and there could be other characteristics given, but in this model church, 
they are lifted up because of their amazing faith, their labor of love, and their patience in hope. They were steadfastly hopeful. Now, what is it that we can take into the present from this church of 2,000 years ago? Well, I've got some questions. How about you? Uh, and let's go around this triad again. And the first fill-in-the-blank would be, are you exercising what in Jesus? Faith. Are you exercising faith in Jesus? That is, do you love, worship, and serve God? That's our goal here as a church, to love, worship, and serve God, to have faith. Now, what would a work of faith look like? Well, there are so many examples. I'm not going to spend a lot of time other than just giving one. I think one of the greatest examples of a Christian here in America to me is Jimmy Carter. He is an amazing person. And he uses his popularity and fame as a president to really bless the world. He and his wife, Rosalind, have traveled to over 120 countries doing good works. It's all prompted by his very outspoken Christian faith. He is an unapologetic believer in Jesus. And that prompts him to works. Now, when you think of Jimmy Carter, the work I think of is uh, this work of him with a hammer. What's he doing? Building houses. And he's very passionate about Habitat for Humanity, and he is often, even now in his 80s, he always lines up some project where he can help build a house for somebody that doesn't have one. That's a work of faith. And so I want to challenge us as we think about our church, what are the works of faith we're doing? Not so much here, but out in the community. Or in your own life, what are the works of faith that you're engaged in? That's the first question. Because a model church is going to be able to say, here are some works of faith. Now, number two, or secondly... What about love? When things get tough, do you still love God and others? Well, it's easy to love God. I mean, it's not easy, but it's easier to love God than others sometimes. Would you agree? At least that's my experience. I don't really have trouble loving God. I do love God. But sometimes loving others, that's a challenge. I'm wondering now, I know uh, we have some folks traveling and all, but is there anybody here that's been married for 50 years? Tom and Marcy, uh, the Gainos, uh, Stan and Ann Can. Okay, raise your hands again. Look around here. We want to give them a round of applause, would you? Isn't that amazing? Three, fo- three folks here have been married over 50 years. Any couples over 40 years? Yeah, here's a couple. Yeah, and some more. That's fantastic. Here's some. Yeah, let's give them another round of applause. Now, if... if uh, If we could interview these folks, and if they were honest, and there might be some exceptions here, but I'm speaking from my own marriage, that uh, sometimes uh, it's a work of faith and sometimes it's a labor of love. Is that true? You don't make 50 years of marriage without some pain, sacrifice, blood, sweat, and tears, hard times, times when you don't feel like you love each other, but you hang in there and you do it. And I encourage you, if you're married right now and maybe going through some deep waters or something, don't quit. There are some answers. There are some solutions. There are counselors to help you. The Lord can help you. You can do this. Look around you. Others have. And so that's, when we think about a labor of love, I I challenge you uh, in that area. Now, one other example. Um, For those of you visiting, we've sort of been through a rough patch here with uh, some significant members of our congregation being called home to the Lord in in May and June. And I came in here on a Wednesday when Daryl's service was going to be held on that Wednesday we were going to meet here. I got here at 6 o'clock in the morning. There were folks already here. The kitchen was buzzing. The gates were open. The lights were on. The stoves were running. And uh, the meal was being prepared for the luncheon after the service. 
Now, that was a great day, 300-plus folks here as we remembered uh, and, and, and worshiped the Lord and remembered a gifted servant. And then after that, uh, sometime late in the afternoon, I decided I'll go out in the park where we all ate. And, you know, some of the folks who were here at 6 were still there picking up these horrendous tables that we have. By a sidebar, we got to raise some money and buy new tables and chairs, but that's another thing. Those tables each weigh 300 pounds or something the world's heaviest tables, and they were out there slaving away, packing up tables and chairs, bring them back in. Now, some of that is just a work of, of love and delight. I'm glad to do this, but sometimes when you're tired and it's hot, it's a labor of love. It may be a labor of love for you to be here today. You, you, you get the point? But the mark of a great church, a model church, is they're going to sacrifice, they're going to pay the price to accomplish the mission, whatever it takes. And I want to challenge us in that area. And then one last area, this word hope. Do you have hope? Do you have hope? Um, in the last, well, it's the fourth chapter, actually, one of the famous passages in Thessalonians is actually a passage about hope. And in this church, similar to our church, there had been a number of people die. Now, they didn't have the advantage of opening their Bible and being encouraged because the only Bible they had was the Old Testament, not the New And so the question came to Paul, when somebody in the church passes away, what happens? And Paul writes this section. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but just to encourage you in hope, here's what he says in verse 13, chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now let me pause. We all grieve when someone we love dies. There's great grief. But Paul says it's not the same as if we didn't have Christ. And here's why. Verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. And he goes on to talk about the return of Christ. And in verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left. He's talking about when the Lord comes back. We'll be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we ever be with the Lord Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, that's a great encouragement of hope. And that's, that's about being patient in hope. And I want to encourage you this morning. How are you doing with faith, with love, and with hope? Because these are the essentials of our faith. And the greater we live these out, the greater we will come close to being a model church. And I want to encourage us in that. Faith, hope, and love. Listen again to the word of the Lord. Paul says about this church, I wonder what will be said about our church in our generation. We always give thanks to God for all of you, for your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness in hope. John Stott says, Every Christian, without exception, is expected to be a believer, a lover, and a hoper. And I hope for you today that you're a believer in Jesus, that you're a lover of God and people, and that you're a hoper, that you live with great hope. And I hope that you'll pray that First Baptist Church in our day be a model church. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the the scriptures, your word, which speak to us yet today. Thank you for the example set to us, the model of this church in Thessalonica. 
a church which endured persecution, a church which loved Jesus passionately and reached out in their day uh, to be examples of faith, of love, and hope. And we pray today that we might be the same. Father, I especially pray for the person, a man or a woman, a young person, who might be struggling with their faith today. Would you increase their faith? Uh, perhaps they're struggling to love someone in a, in a relationship. I pray that you might open their minds and insights and help them to have keen insight how they may be able to love perhaps a difficult person. And then, Lord, we pray that we might have this living faith in us that looks to the future, a future with, with you that you've prepared for us. Give us great hope. In Jesus' name, amen.